So we were 13 days out from our wedding, and we were anticipating in 13 days the start of our brand new life together, husband and wife, Tim and Emily. It was so exciting. And not only that, in the middle of those 13 days, I would be graduating from seminary. So Saturday, number one, graduating from seminary. Saturday, number two, getting married. Actually, it was a Friday. I should probably remember that. Uh, we were so excited, and I was up for this position. I was uh, interviewing for this job. It was an out-of-state job, and we were really excited because it was a shoe-in. Like, we were, we were in. Like, I was going to get this full-time job. We'd move out of state as newlyweds and start a brand-new adventure together. Now, Emily and I had this process, this, like, habit of reading a psalm a day that corresponds to how many days we have left till the wedding. So if we have 100 days left to the wedding, we read Psalm 100. 75 days left to the wedding, Psalm 75, 50 days, Psalm 50, you, you get the idea. And so this was 13 days before our wedding. And 13 days before starting this brand new life together, 13 days before like moving out of state and like getting this job, we got some news. The job that I was a shoe-in for, like the job that I was banking on, the job that we had already started looking online for apartments because we wanted to be seamless in this transition, moving out of state as newlyweds on a new adventure in life. This, this new job that I was sure, my reference, my, my recommendation was from an internationally known speaker and author who was best friends with somebody on the search committee. Like, the, the job that... I so desperately wanted and needed because without it, we would be newly graduated, newly married, and unemployed. They went with another candidate. And then an hour later, Emily and I got a call from her mom that my soon-to-be father-in-law was just diagnosed with cancer. 13 days before our wedding. So... (laughs) Have you ever been there? Like, not with me 13 days before the wedding, but have you ever been in a place where you're like, what the heck is going on? I don't understand. I don't get it. What is happening? The, the, or, or maybe like there's some bad news or the, the dread or anticipation of bad news and all of a sudden you're thinking, there's so much that could go wrong in this and your mind just starts racing about what could go wrong even though nothing actually has yet. Our minds go to the worst-case scenarios all the time, right? So Emily and I were sitting there on her parents' couch and processing all of this, and we're thinking, okay, well, maybe we, we didn't get the job because we're going to have to stay in Emily's hometown and care for her newly widowed mom. And like, worst-case scenario after worst-case scenario after worst-case scenario, our minds are, are fantastic, right? They just take us to really deep, dark places really quick uh, without any warning. Um, it's amazing, Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you're in that right now where you're in the middle of a situation or a scenario and you don't know what's next. You don't know if there's light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe you're doubting the fact that God is with you. I mean, if there could possibly be a good God through all of this because the way that you're processing it, that there's, there's no way that God could call himself good and allow things like this to happen in our world. It's a little bit of what like Emily and I felt like 13 days before our wedding. Health issues, unemployment, general sense of dread and hopelessness for the future. We were devastated. 
So we sat down, like I said, on the couch of her parents' house, and we did the only thing we could think of doing in that moment. We turned to our psalm, 13 days before the wedding. Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Whoa. Talk about being slapped in the face with reality. The psalm was written by David, and it hit so close to home for us 13 days before our wedding. Like us, David was feeling rejected. He was feeling alone, confused, on the border of feeling like there wasn't any hope for the future. Sometimes God knows exactly what we need to hear when we need to hear it. And sometimes our thoughts have been thoughts of humans for thousands of years. Sometimes our thoughts have been thoughts of humans, who real humans, who lived in the Bible times, and their thoughts are recorded for us today. So we're going to take a few minutes to unpack Psalm 13. We're going to kind of get into it a little bit and see what David was really feeling and experiencing. And, and when we take a look at the first four verses of Psalm 13, we see two things happening. We see David has a cry of despair, and then David has a desperate prayer. So, We're going to start with his cry of despair. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 for you again if you're following along. David says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day or day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? There's so much here, and I love the language that he's using. He He's feeling as though he's been abandoned by God. Almost like he took a three-hour tour and got shipwrecked on a deserted tropical island with no hope for rescue. Although that actually wouldn't be too bad, Um, especially if like Marianne and the professor are there and some of you get the reference, great. Um, But there was probably no uh, three-hour tour. There's probably no deserted island, uh, especially tropical deserted island. But... Whatever was going on, he was experiencing extreme grief. In reality, we actually don't know the situation that David was facing. We don't exactly know when he wrote it or why he wrote it, but we do know that he, he was experiencing some real things. They were either real emotional things, and the enemies that he's talking about are metaphorical, facing some, some inner turmoil, Maybe he was actually facing a physical enemy and and that's what was going on and he was about to face a physical danger. We're not exactly sure. Again, it could could be anything from David's life. It could be the time that, that he was being chased by Saul, his enemy, and Saul wanted to kill him. It could have been the time that he lost his son. It could have been the time where he was, you know, dealing with the whole slept with this woman, killed her husband to cover it up kind of like situation that went on. Um could be anything. We know, what we know about David's life is there's a lot. He experienced a lot. In so many instances throughout his life, he could have prayed this prayer, this cry of despair. 
We really don't know which one it was, but it was very evident that he was experiencing something real and intense. His mind was filled with grief, with doubt, with fear, and with a sense of abandonment. And it's very evident when he asks this question. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? Now, if you're following along your Bible or your Bible app, the word face, circle it, highlight it, underline it. Whatever you can do, when you go to your Bible later, circle this, highlight this, underline this, because this word face is so cool. Face is a metonym in Scripture. Have you ever heard of that word, metonym? I hadn't until very recently, and I looked up the definition on Oxford Language's website. So it says, a metonym or metonymy is the substitution of the name of an attribute or adjunct for that thing of the thing meant. Right? I still had no idea what metonym was. So I had to look at some examples. Okay, what is metonym? Here's some examples. When we think of the word the crown, we don't necessarily think of a physical crown sitting on a table. More often than not, we think of, maybe thanks to a TV show or, or, or whatnot, we think of royalty or the head of a royal family. Here's one that we might see a little bit more clearly. Has anybody ever asked you to lend a hand? Like, lend a hand. Does anybody take out a sword, cut off their hand, and hand it to them? Like, that's actually lending a hand, right? But we know that the phrase, lending a hand, doesn't mean give them your hand. It's this phrase, it's this word for help them out, lend them a hand. And so we get what metonymy means. It's this representation, it's a word or phrase that is known to represent something else. And so in scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, face is a metonym for presence, like the physical presence of someone. Specifically here, it's the presence of God. And so if you had somebody's face looking at you or shining towards you, it was God's presence is there, his blessing and his acceptance of that person is, is there. And if the face is hiding, God's not there. He's withdrawn himself. He, he's withdrew his, his blessing and his acceptance. And so what we see in David is that, man, he feels alone. I mean, we see this in Deuteronomy 31. Uh, in that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. We see this face thing again happening in Job chapter 13. It says, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? And on the other side of that, that coin, we see face again. In this positive note in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So I think that's pretty cool. I think that's really, I mean, it's, it's pretty, I hope you think it's cool too, that this one word can represent something so robust. And so again, what is David feeling and thinking when he says, why do you hide, how long will you hide your face from me? David, what are you talking about? I, I feel like God has left me. I feel like God has abandoned me. And he's suffering in loneliness to the point of anguish and depression. I mean, the beginning of verse 2, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Whatever's going on, it's not fun. Whatever's going on, it is real. 
just look at the repetition of, of verses one and two. These two words are found four times. How long? How long? And this isn't just some like, oh, how long until we get there? Like soft, fuzzy, how long? This is how long? Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation in which you've searched your thoughts to try to figure out what has happened? where you wonder if the bad news that you've received or the negative thoughts about what bad things could happen just fill your mind. And instead of being reassured with hope and and reassurance of the future, your thoughts go in a different direction altogether. And you, like David, wonder how long, how long must I wrestle with these thoughts? So that's, that's David's cry of despair. Then he turns a corner and he has a desperate prayer in verses three and four. He says, look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. We see three imperatives here laid out by David. It's, It's look, answer, and give light. All three of these statements are petitions to God to see him in his fragile state, and to do something. Answer me. Help me understand what's going on. Give light to my eyes. In other words, like give me a reason to keep on keeping on, or the situation that I'm facing is going to seem overwhelming. Can you feel what David was feeling? Can you understand what was going through his mind? His mind was filled with thoughts of being alone. His mind was filled with messages like there is absolutely no hope for tomorrow. And I think Psalm 13 is so relevant for us today. A recent Gallup uh, study, uh, over 124 different countries have found that 24% of the population, ages 15 and above, say that they are very or fairly lonely. Quarter of the population, very or fairly lonely. And another Gallup poll of just the United States found that of people who said they were very alone, 62% of people who feel alone are significantly worried. So there's a lot of people in our world who are alone and are worried. Just like David felt alone and worried And here's something I know to be true. Those within the church are not immune to these kinds of thoughts. Christ followers are not automatically protected from these feelings of despair, these feelings of being alone and worried. And if you've been around a church for any period of time, you know that shouldn't be the case. Like, aren't those who are in Christ, who have called themselves Christians, who say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, shouldn't, shouldn't we, of all people, not be feeling alone or feeling worried or having anxious thoughts? Um, Shouldn't we feel the opposite of what David felt in Psalm 13? The idea that we're alone, abandoned, and have no hope for tomorrow is a lie. So then I ask the question, why do I identify so much with David in Psalm 13? Why are so many Christians stuck with thoughts like that? Where do these lies come from? And the Bible gives a very clear answer to that. Check this out. 
In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil? Like, really? Like, really? I mean, the devil, isn't that so antiquated, like this old fat? The devil, all of the New Testament human authors mention the devil in some capacity. And Jesus himself talks about the devil as if he is real and active. Uh, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says of the devil, he, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, Jesus and the rest of the, the, the God's word points to the fact that the devil is real and the devil is on a mission to bring about death and destruction and separation from God. And the means or the method of his mission is to spread lies. You see, I, I think we typically think of the devil as um, like maybe even spiritual battles and like this, this idea of like fighting the devil. We think of it like a Lord of the Rings scene, uh, like an epic battle scene where there's these two forces coming together and you see that all of the armies are here and all the armies are here and they're about to face each other and there's a lot of just fighting and death and destruction. I don't, I don't think that's how the devil really, really works. I would like to picture him more... And I think it's accurate to picture him more like living in a dark and damp basement on a computer, researching humanity, figuring out the right algorithms for a successful battle. It's like when my wife and I were talking about a few months ago, she was waking up every day with a sore neck. And we were having a conversation. It's like, man, her, her neck is sore. Oh, yeah, let's massaging. Let's, let's try things. We never once looked online for anything, but the next day we got, in, both of us have Instagram ads for memory foam pillows. Like, we've never had that before. They're listening. <laughs> and they're catering to our circumstances. So is the devil. He's studying humanity to try to figure out our triggers, our fears, our habits. And he's using that information that he's gathering against us. And his battle is helped by this concept known as confirmation bias, which we tend to believe things. We tend to have more, provide more credence to, like we tend to really understand and believe things that align with our preconceived notions and align with what we already think, even if what we already think is a lie. So we look out to the world around us, and because of confirmation bias, which is part of who we are, we begin to believe more lies. It's as if the devil is sitting there thinking, man, I've got this guy fixed on a lie. I'm going to feed him so many more things so he can double down on that lie. Or this one over here, he just got a hard diagnosis. I'm going to make him believe that there is no hope for tomorrow. Or, or this one, she feels super alone. I'm going to make her believe that there is no one around to help. Or she's, she's pregnant. Such a fun time, but so much can go wrong. I'm going to make her live in fear. See, the devil lies about who God is, 
The devil lies about who we are, and the devil lies about what is good in this world. So when we experience the fallen nature of humanity and the result of our, our, our own sin, the devil capitalizes on our circumstances and feeds us further lies, making us come to the conclusion that, there, that we are a lost cause, that we're abandoned, or that God is just not that good after all. Lie. 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 So, good morning. <laughs> so what do we do? How do we move forward? Like, how do we, what do we do in this reality? And maybe we just start with a question. What's on your mind? What's on your mind? The first step to growth is to understand where we currently stand, to ask yourself what we're thinking about today. So as you, as you get ready for your day, what's on your mind? As you drive to work, what are you thinking about the world around you? When you're faced with challenges and tough decisions throughout your day that you have to make, what are you telling yourself? And as you receive difficult news, where does your mind go? Maybe when you think about the future, what are your thoughts? As we consider our thoughts, as we become more aware about what's going on in our minds throughout the day, we'll begin to identify the lies. And if you're sitting here thinking, oh, no, no lies up here, all truth, no, no lies whatsoever, okay, okay. I would challenge you to pray David's prayer in Psalm 139, where he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Because the Holy Spirit can reveal things to us that we don't necessarily see ourselves. And when we begin to see the lies in our thoughts, here's what you do next. Okay, ready for it? You ready for the trick? When you identify the lies that you begin to think, here's what you do next. You stop thinking about them. Right? Did someone say, yeah, right? I, yeah, right. Like, how, it's, you stop, let me just stop thinking about things. I can't stop thinking about things that are in my mind. In fact, let me tell you, you actually can't. In 1987, a Harvard professor proved that the more we try to suppress a thought, the more that that thought comes to life. So let's try it. Stop thinking about Abraham Lincoln. Right? Abraham Lincoln, why did he choose that? Stop thinking. You're, you're thinking about him. What are you doing? Stop thinking about a purple elephant wearing a blue bear costume. Really? A blue bear? You're thinking about it. You, can't, you cannot just take a thought and place it out of your mind. It's impossible. It, it, you, just, you just can't do it. In fact, there's this idea that what you resist persists. Uh, you can't escape or just resist thoughts. So how do we get rid of the thoughts? There is something we can do. We replace lies with truth. We replace lies with truth. That's exactly what Jesus did as he faced the devil in the wilderness when the devil fed him lies, Jesus replaced it with scripture. He replaced it with God's word, with truth. This is our primary, primary war against the devil. 
to fight lies with truth, to take back control of our minds that have been taken to captivity. And we do that with the weapon of truth. It's really cool. Developments in, in neuroscience over the years have shown us that where we direct our attention can literally rewire our brains. And when an unwanted thought or intrusive thought pops into our conscious awareness, the simple task of replacing that thought with something else can change the way that we think over time. Dallas Willard, uh, a Christian author and pastor and, and uh, professor, wrote a book named Renovation of the Heart. And in it, he says this, as we first turned away from God in our thoughts, so it is in our thoughts that the first movements toward the renovation of the heart occur. Thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. Even in last week's sermon, Pastor Rex said, decisions determine destiny. So that what we pay attention to, what we spend time doing, determines the way that we go in life. This sounds eerily familiar to Romans 12, verse 2, which says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, changing our thoughts can transform our minds. So by making a conscious effort to focus on truth over lies, you, you transform your mind and change the way that you view and engage with life as a whole. It's really the call of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, which says, demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So how do we get over the lies? By remembering truth. Easier said than done, right? So many, I can say this a hundred times, and it's so much easier to say than it is to do. So I've just got two quick ideas for us today. Two quick ideas to help this actually to be taken home. And the first is this. Back on December 31st, uh, I preached a sermon uh, where we had Papa. Remember Papa? Oh, man, Papa was awesome. If you weren't here, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Who's Papa? We had a little fireplace and a rocking chair, and Papa gave us his life advice for how do you read the Bible. And then we introduced these reading plans. Reading the Bible through in a year, reading the New Testament through in a year. And we challenged you to, to read your Bible this year. And if you weren't here or you didn't do that, we have those reading plans available again. They're at the info center after the service. Grab one and take it home and read your Bible. And the lie is saying to you right now, doesn't he know it's January 28th? I got 28 days to catch up on. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? But the truth is, it's not about reading the Bible in a year. It's about reading the Bible. <laughs> You don't have to finish it in a year. Just make it a daily habit to engage with God's word. It's not too late to start. Because when we discipline ourselves in scripture, day after day, week after week, we are steeping ourselves in truth. And we'll start to see truth popping out. And we'll start to remember truth. And we'll be able to hold on to truth in the midst of lies. And that daily habit can transform your mind and with it, it can, it can change your life. Here's one more thought. In the fourth century, there was a monk named Evagrius. 
and he dedicated a portion of his life to, quote, fighting demons in the wilderness. What a job description, right? I'm a monk, and I fight demons. Pretty cool. Put that on LinkedIn. It's like he, he fought demons, and then he wrote a book about his experience, and the book is called Talking Back, a Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. So he wrote a handbook for how to combat demons. That's super cool. Well, let's read it. Like, the, look at these battles that are taking place, and maybe it's like Lord of the Rings kind of stuff. It is simply identifying lies that humans believe and identifying a truth that combats that lie. That's what the book's about. How do you combat demons? Well, you remember truth. What would it look like for you to write your own monastic handbook for combating demons? You might write things that sound like this, against the thought that because I lost my job, God is not good. I believe the Lord is good to all and has compassion on all he has made, from Psalm 145, verse 9. Or this one, against the thought that it will be easier to give in to sin than to avoid it, I believe blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life. And the Lord has promised, that the Lord has promised to those who love him. From James chapter 1, verse 12. Or there's this one, a little bit more simple. Against the thought that I have no value. I believe I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. From Psalm 139, verse 14. The specifics of these examples may not apply to you, but you could you could write your own monastic handbook for combating demons with the real lies that you tend to believe, that you've identified are in your mind more often than not. So make a list. Like literally, go home today and make a list of the lies that you tend to believe and then go to God's word and, and find the truth. Read your Bible. Find the truth. Go to some like concordance in the back of the Bible or some kind of like topical index Maybe ask your friends or your small group, hey, I've, I've been struggling with this lie. Can you help me find truth to combat it? Or maybe you need to just Google it and say, hey, I'm, what does the Bible say about this? Just make sure you look it up in the Bible afterwards so that you actually know that that's, Google is pointing you to the right thing. But find the truth that combats the lies that you tend to believe in your own life and then put those truths to memory so the next time that lie creeps up, you can begin replacing it. And as we replace it, day after day, we'll begin to change our thoughts. We'll begin to transform our minds. And I believe God will grow us and change our lives. It's like what Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, verse 3. He says, you, referring to God, will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. And by the way, this is exactly what David did in Psalm 13. I didn't finish the psalm earlier. That was on purpose. He goes on to say, in the middle of the despair, starting in verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. This kind of 
praise, this kind of like victorious cry, usually would happen after everything has been settled. The battle has been won. Everything's fine. Everything, the, the road has been set straight. Let me do a victorious praise like this. But there's no evidence that anything changed in David's life between verses four and five. He was in the middle of despair. He was in the middle of chaos. He was in the middle of who knows what's next. I'm going to die. Then he says very, two very important words, but I. He's making a conscious effort to replace lies with truth. He's making a conscious effort to remember how God has been good. And I believe that led to a changed life for David as he did that more and more. And so Emily and I, we were sitting on her parents' couch 13 days before our wedding, not knowing what's next, feeling a bit despaired, feeling a bit chaotic, and we had to make a conscious decision to replace lies with truth. So against the thought that I'll never get a job and our future is hopeless, we believe all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And against the thought that a diagnosis is the end of the world, we believe that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you put it on David's heart to write this down so we could read it thousands of years later. God, I thank you that you have reminded us that no matter what we're feeling, no matter what we're thinking and experiencing, God, you are strong and you are with us. God, I pray for all those who are experiencing turmoil like David did. God, I ask that you would help us to identify the lies that we believe and help us to find the truth, to replace those lies, to change our thoughts, to be more focused on who you are and what you have done for us and the promises that you've given. Because God, no matter how, no matter how we doubt your goodness, the reality is, the truth is, that you are always good. Help us to believe that. Transform our minds, God. Transform our hearts in Christ Jesus. Amen.